Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. Hello, hello, welcome to episode 30 of the Market Pulse podcast. This is the Barcart edition. Thank you very much for tuning in to this week's episode. Hope you are enjoying your weekend or your day, whatever you're doing out there. Well, we've got a few things to talk about today. I'm going to actually throw back to last episode and sort of touch on one of those questions that I answered or add a little bit to it, I guess I should say. And we've got a few things to discuss in terms of maybe some more macroeconomic things that are going on in the US that I thought was interesting, some ASX stuff. We're going to do a bit of a focus on Kathmandu, but first we're going to look at how the market went, of course, as always. So the ASX 200 was up 1.51%. Not a bad result overall for the index in Australia this week, actually the best the market has enjoyed in about six weeks there. And what dragged the index up? Well, for the latter part of the week, the financial sector certainly helped The big banks got a nice bump for the week after the news that the government will move to scrap responsible lending regulation over the next six months, I believe, by March. And that's, I guess, a method to try and ease the flow of credit to consumers who are looking to borrow for houses or business. And a couple other good performers for the week on the index were companies like Solpats and ServiceStream. Now, the US was a little different. The S&P 500 was actually down, was down 0.6%. But contrary to that, the NASDAQ was up about 1.1%. So it got a little help from its big tech companies. But like I said at the top, throwing back to the last episode, and the last episode was one where I actually sat and reflected on it for a little while after I uploaded it. And in, I was thinking specifically about a particular listener question around this, the impact of the US election on equity markets and investors. And I kind of think the more I reflected on it, the more I thought about a point that I probably missed in my answer, which is, you know, what if the election doesn't come and go in a smooth fashion? And I mean, it's hard to imagine it being that smooth anyway, given how hyper-partisan the US is and how divided and seemingly how vocal you know, energetic and angry various sides of the political spectrum are right now. But what I mean is what I felt that I lacked in my answer is just the possibility of a stalled result or a contested result in the election. So when I say stalled, I mean the result might not be clear straight away. And one example of how that could play out is, so there's some example swing states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, which just like every other state in the US, they're going to be expecting a significant amount of postal ballots compared to normal this election and due to COVID-19. But according, I was reading a political article during the, a Politico article, I should say, during the week about this very same topic. And as as important as these states are to the actual overall election result and the outcome, officials who actually count ballots are not actually allowed to start doing so until election day. So even if the mailing ballots are coming in now, for example. So, and counting mail votes is a very time-consuming process, as you can imagine. And further to this, and I'm going to single out one of these states here, which is Pennsylvania, they ruled that postal votes that are considered naked won't be counted. 
So because in this state, the way to post your vote for this election is you need to put your ballot in an envelope. It's called a secrecy envelope, I believe. And then you put that envelope in another larger envelope. And that actually has the you know the stamp on it and the address on it and all that kind of stuff. The theory is that if someone picked up your letter, they can't actually see who you're voting for, right? So they can't see if you voted for Biden or for Trump. And they've basically ruled that if you stuff this process up, your vote's not actually going to be counted. And you know, further info on this kind of stuff, you can you can listen and read about it um, in the first ten minutes of. There's a really good show on ABC called Planet America and they did a fireside chat episode they posted to YouTube on September 25th and this talks about this issue and they even bring up the point that normally on average about 1% of mail-in votes are rejected in every election in the past and because of COVID increasing the amount of people that do choose to vote this way, you're going to see a lot of like people doing it for the first time in their lives. So they're not used to it, right? And being their first time, they will inevitably stuff up rules like this. And just like, for example, that, that Pennsylvania rule, meaning that your overall number of rejected ballots will probably be a lot higher than 1%. So just going back to everything, you might be sitting there saying, who cares? This isn't the Political Pulse podcast. And you're right, I'm not trying to go off into the weeds. My reflection over the last week is more about the impact on the market if there's uncertainty in the election result. So if the election result is not accepted, if a million lawsuits start getting filed in response to things like rejected ballots or late ballots that were or were not counted, that kind of uncertainty can cause the markets to get very choppy. And that's probably a concern I failed to highlight last episode. And it's something I thought about more during the week and Certainly something you should pay attention to because the election is something like 35 days away. So it's going to be a wild ride, I think. We'll see. Okay, getting into some sort of broad macroeconomic stuff that I wanted to cover in the episode. I've been meaning to catch up on some reading over the past week and I've highlighted a few points here to discuss. Specifically, these first few relate to the US and not, not to Australia. So, so the first one is regarding US business closures and CNBC reported on an economic impact report that was actually released by Yelp. So Yelp is in the website like app where you can review businesses on their service. So I, I must admit I didn't know Yelp did reports like this, but I guess given their platform, they have access to a lot of consumer and business data that is kind of helpful, I guess, when measuring the impact of COVID-19. So I'm just going to quote the CNC, CNBC report here. So as of August 31, 163,735 total US businesses on Yelp have closed since the beginning of the pandemic, which is observed as March 1st. In the wake of COVID-19 cases increasing and local restrictions continuing to change in many states, we're seeing both permanent and temporary closures rise across the nation. And 60% of those closed businesses not reopening. So 60% of the 163,000 figure I just gave you. So 97,966 are permanently closed. And on the same theme, there was also a survey released by the New York City Hospitality Alliance that was reported on in the New York Times this week. And it kind of found a pretty disturbing 87% of restaurants that said they had not paid their entire August rent in New York City, which was an increased from 80% surveyed in June on the exact same topic. 
And that, that survey was based on about 450 responses, but it underlines this issue that whilst they've been allowed to do outdoor dining and that's opened up, you know, many food establishments will still struggle to make a living under those capacity restrictions just due, you know, due to the sheer low patronage, patronage that's allowed and, and the fact that their rent doesn't change based on that. And again, moving along the same theme, but to a different topic now, this data comes from an LA Times article during the week titled Tsunami of Hotel Closures is Coming. Now, I read a really interesting part of this article, which I'll quote here. It comes after the story of the closure this month of the Hilton Times Square in New York City. But this is actually about hotels being behind on their lending agreements. The article says, quote, nationwide, it's not clear how many hotels are behind on their loan payments. The figures are available on hotel loans that have been bundled and sold to investors as commercial mortgage-backed securities. Payments on 16.77% of those loans are more than 30 days late, according to Fitch ratings, up dramatically from less than 2% before the industry began feeling the pandemic's financial effects. And jumping topics again, but this is down to more of a consumer level, and sort of how people are, but still staying on the same theme. But this week, Bloomberg reported on a Pew Research Center study that showed some continued damage in the US labor market, specifically related to wage cuts during the pandemic. A couple of points here from the Bloomberg article on September 25th and the Pew Research findings. So half of adults who say they've lost a job due to the pandemic remain unemployed, according to the Pew study. And that and Bloomberg article sort of highlights how that's actually consistent with what the government statistics show in the US, which is they've regained about half of the 22 million lost jobs. But what's interesting and pointed out in this article, and it's this stuff that's sort of not so clear from government data, so to speak, and I'll, I'll quote this article, it's written here by Jordan Yadu. So nearly one third of adults surveyed by researchers say either they or someone in their household had to reduce their hours or accept a pay cut because of the outbreak, with 21% saying that this happened to them personally. Among the sub-segment of adults, 60% say they are currently earning less than the out- than before the outbreak, with 34% making about the same amount of money and 6% earning more than before the spread of the virus. Now, to clarify, well, I'm not sure if I did clarify this data. All this data is just related to the US market, not here at home, but given... Also, that listener question last week around the US election. Yeah, it's, I think it's an important reminder to sort of understand how fragile their economy is right now. You sort of can't on, shake the feeling that it's a bit of a powder keg ready to go off, but we're going to see. Now, we'll jump into some ASX stuff for the podcast this week, and we're going to look at Soul Pats and Kathmandu. But firstly, probably two key points that were discussed this week. First being what I mentioned at the top of the show regarding responsible lending laws being scrapped in Australia as the federal government wants to drive new lending for homes and businesses. Now, on this point, I found the argument by NAB chief economist Alan Oster quite interesting. Alan was quoted in the AFR this week regarding this move by the government, and I'll read here what he had to say. NAB chief economist Alan Oster said, at best, removing such onerous responsible lending restriction would add back one percentage point of house price growth to a 10% fall in house prices he is expecting overall. And he's quoted here saying, it would clearly free up credit and it might make banks feel a bit better, but the problem is 
many people don't want credit at the moment. So it's not a supply side problem, but a demand side problem. It really depends on jobs. The uh, Mr. Oster, the economist there said, which I thought, which yeah, seems to, to be true to me. The second point sort of brought up this week was around interest rates, which is somewhat related. You had two banks, both Westpac and NAB, making the call that they expect the RBA to actually further reduce rates uh, over the coming months. The specific call from Westpac's chief economist, Bill Evans, is that it will happen in October and it could go down to 0.1% from its current 0.25% level. And they're just one of several institutions now. I think NAB might have been the first one to call it, but A&P Capital saying the same thing, beta shares are also calling that there's going to be a rate cut. So I didn't think we'd see that, to be honest with you, but we might be seeing another rate cut um, basically as close as you can get almost to negative without being negative at 0.1%. So, I mean, they seem to have, I don't know how much of a difference it's going to make, but yeah, we, we could be seeing one because they're, they're going to meet in within the next 12 days or so, not, not this week coming, but the next. So we'll see. And who said dividends were dead? No one probably said that. But Washington H. Sol Pattinson, or let's just say Sol Pats, because it's that much easier, released their full financial year results to the market during the week. And they managed to increase their dividend for the 20th year in a row, which is quite contrary to many other, I guess, famous dividend payers during this period of time during 2020. But it, they did manage to lift it. Sol Pats, a very old. I guess you could say a very staple investment. Lots of long-term shareholders like it for their stability, uh, that it, the stability that it can bring to their portfolio as well. And you saw this point actually emulated in their investor presentation that was released to the market where they quite proudly showed that a $1,000 investment in their company back in 1980, if left compounding with the dividend, would be worth uh, just over $155,000 now. Now they sell pats themselves there. I guess they're at the, they're like an investment company is the best way to think about it. So when you're buying shares in them, they they themselves invest in things and own own sort of large stakes in other businesses. Probably the most notable, or a few of the most notable, I should say, is they've got just over a twelve percent stake in TPG Telecom, fifty percent so big stake in New Hope Coal about a fifth of the stake in Australian Pharmaceutical Industries, which is a pharma group, but most noteworthy for pharmacies like Priceline. And they've got a big stake in Brickworks. And and I should also mention that a lot of those, a lot of those that I just listed there are actually themselves individually listed on the ASX. And as for its results, well, I guess like a lot of basically everyone reporting to the market at the moment, they sort of claim an impact from COVID-19. Sol Pats's investments, they're a little bit hot and cold through this reporting. Probably the pain in their side right now is that coal business, New Hope. But if you're looking at it, if you and you which you want to be, if you're looking at it a long-term investment, they're not that's not a bad play at all. I mean, and again, I I really mean that as a long-term investment because it's it's not it's not like some crazy growth stock or anything, but it's a it's a very decent backbone to the portfolio kind of share. And I'm not I'm not, not sure that you could go wrong with it for to be honest. This is general advice. Do your own research, of course. But I don't I don't own it personally, but but again, if your horizon is forever, 
it's not a bad choice as a, as a backbone to your portfolio. But let's jump to one that we will take a little bit of a closer look at this week, and that's Kathmandu. So Kathmandu came to the market in the middle of the week to present their full financial year results. And like much of the reporting from the land of retail, it hasn't been a great year for the company. So Kathmandu Holdings is made up of a couple different pillars for their business, of course, the outdoor wear branded stores of the exact same name, Kathmandu stores, you would have seen them around. They also own surfing brand Rip Curl and an outdoor shoe brand called Oboz. Again, a, a very recurring theme among retailers over the years and especially under the circumstances of 2020 is the ability to see some big growth in their online channels. And this was certainly the case for Kathmandu. Their full group online sales were up 63% for the financial year. And this represented about 15.7% of all sales for the group. And if you look back at past financial years, you see that their online sales have always been rising, but they've never jumped as big as this. So their online sales as a percentage of total sales coming in at 15.7% is a much bigger jump than normal for the business in the past couple of years because in the past two financial years, they made up online sales made up 7.6 and 8.8% of total sales respectively. So it basically almost doubled this time around. So yes, I, I guess a green shoot in the news, I suppose, would be that online sales had a strong showing and consumer preference for this type of buying has definitely shown through but you can definitely get into the not-so-pretty stuff for Kathmandu. There was a 44.5% drop in underlying profits for the group, which more or less sealed the fate on any... Not that people had probably any hope for this, but for any dividend being paid, their company confirming that the dividend had been cancelled, suspended, whatever you want to say. And your key reasons cited by the company on their results for this financial year is they say an estimated $135 million revenue impact because of COVID-19 specifically. They, of course, had to close their stores down. And probably a key thing, I think, is just that reduced demand for travel-related products due to border restrictions. And that's probably a point worth highlighting because although that isn't what Kathmandu stores like solely sell, they do cater to a lot of travel-related gear. And that's which is popular in their stores, but that's very suppressed right now, given that travel itself is suppressed. But they're probably also benefiting a little bit from there seems to be this sort of drive of people to be outside a bit more, given, I guess, the lockdowns and things like this or undertaking activities like hiking or trails. So there's probably some benefit there for them. At the market lows in March, Kathmandu actually got down to $0.47 a share, I believe that was its lowest it closed at. However, they closed this week out at $1.12. Now, before the pandemic, it was trading as high as $2.47. So investors are still very much licking their wounds. It has bounced pretty high back off those March lows and from the offering price of their cap raise that they did. But... Uh, yeah, I guess the this result wasn't too unexpected, but the, still the shares were down this week in Kathmandu. Shares down about 4.27% for the week. Where do I sit on Kathmandu? I mean, if you listened to me the other week, you would have heard me say I don't really invest in retail companies and Kathmandu is no exceptions. Again, that's not. I made the point that that doesn't mean I'm right about everything. I just, the problem with, this is a broader note that I'll make and it's not specific to Kathmandu 
even though I'd probably rather, I'd definitely rather own a Kathmandu than like a Maya that I talked about the other week. But the problem is there's still a little, it still can be a little bit cyclical based on trends in fashion. But the biggest issue for me that would stop me from putting money into Kathmandu right now is there's still too much unknown with COVID because how do we know or how do we not know that there's not going to be another lockdown, second waves? How do we know when travel's going to come back in any kind of normal fashion? It's just not at the moment. It could be years, you know. So you could be investing in Kathmandu and it might do all right, of course, but it might take years to even get back to where it was pre-pandemic. And so that's the reason why. It's just too too much of those worries, I think, in the back of my head would stop me from investing in a company like Kathmandu. And again, that none of that is really that specific to the business itself. It's more just the broader macro environment. I'd be too scared to really touch a company like this because best case scenario, the worst of it's over and we go back to some kind of normal next year, but who knows? And that's that's why I, that's why I probably sit on Kathmandu. I, I don't think I'd invest in it well thank you very much for tuning into this week with feels like we've flown by jumped on a lot of different topics there like last episode where i had a couple listener questions if you do have listener questions for the show shoot them through that's market pulse podcast at gmail.com like i always say i enjoy word of mouth marketing so tell your friends about the podcast if you think they'd enjoy this but otherwise enjoy the rest of your day enjoy the enjoy the new week my name is Dion Grubin. Thank you very much for tuning in. Cheers.